Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Namihinui and welcome. From RNZ National, here's our changing world. The endangered kakapo is having a great breeding season, but a dark cloud hanging over the good news has been high levels of infertility. Over half of the kakapo eggs that were laid were infertile, and even fertile eggs have been dying before they hatch. Kakapo isn't the only endangered species suffering from this problem either, and Helen Taylor, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Otago, is hoping her work with bird sperm might shed some light on the matter. She's been looking at sperm from a number of native and introduced bird species, including the common but often overlooked dunnock or hedge sparrow. And this summer, Helen teamed up with PhD student Carlos Esteban Lara, who's been studying dunnocks in the Dunedin Botanic Gardens for the last three years. And Alison joins the pair for a dawn start down by the Rose Garden. So the study I'm working on at the moment is concerned with male fertility in birds, in particular sperm quality, so sperm motility, sperm morphology and DNA fragmentation within sperm and how that might be related to genetic diversity and inbreeding in species that have experienced population bottlenecks. So you're looking at both native and introduced species? That's right, yeah. We're, we're, we're looking across a broad spectrum of population bottleneck sizes. So we're looking at native species such as hee and robins, and then introduced species like dunnocks and blackbirds. And so why is this important? Why do we need to know this? Well, especially for our native species, that are most of which are threatened or endangered in some way, and, and almost all of which have experienced a population bottleneck, when we're trying to boost population numbers, reproductive success is very important. And if we're seeing birds with, with quite high incidences of hatching failure, we need to know why that is. Is it to do with problems with embryo development, or is it to do with issues in male fertility, so that we can try and manage for that in the future? especially for species like kakapo, where they're doing things like artificial insemination, that becomes very important. What have you got in your bag? I've got two male dunnocks, hedge sparrows. I'm going to be using a technique called cloacal massage, which helps me get semen from the birds. So it's a completely non-invasive technique. It's a technique that was invented in the 1950s. Most male birds don't have a penis. They have just one hole opening, a cloaca, for everything. And during mating season, that uh, cloaca kind of swells up. The area around it swells up and makes a protuberance. And you can just massage that side to side and back to front, and that'll cause a little bit of semen to, to be extruded, and you can collect that quite easily. Sounds straightforward, but dunnocks are quite small. Yes, dunnocks are small, so their cloaca is a bit smaller than some of the other birds I've been working with, so it can be a little bit fiddly. So we're dealing with really small amounts of liquid... But often, even these tiny, tiny amounts can have millions and millions of sperm in. So we use a small capillary tube to collect it. It works quite well. And then I have it in a, a storage tube that's got um, a special swimming medium in it. It'll keep the sperm happy for a few minutes while we finish processing the bird. So Carlos has already taken a lot of measurements like weight and various morphometric measurements um, so we want to know if condition is having any effect on the, the sperm quality as well. So the next part of the process is getting the, the semen samples onto the microscope as quickly as possible. So into your little mobile office that you've already got set up with a microscope and everything. Yeah, so this is our mobile lab, which we basically designed especially for this project. What it has here is a, a microscope collect, connected to a laptop. 
and the laptop has a computer-assisted sperm analyzer program on it. And what I've also got is a reptile heat pad in a Tupperware box, and that allows me to keep everything like the slides and pipette tips and everything like that warm, so that anything that's going to come into contact with the semen or the sperm is always warm. We also have a slide warmer on the microscope, and that's set to 37 degrees, as is the heat pad. And that just makes sure that um, the sperm is staying, the semen is staying at a constant temperature as possible. And then it's just a matter of getting the samples out onto the slide and, and having a look at what we've got. And you click the button that says Analyze. Yep, so this is telling the, the camera that's on top of the microscope that feeds through to the laptop to connect through. This now oh, does have sperm. Little swimmers everywhere. Yeah, so you can see them swimming around there. So it's pretty cool. When you get them under the microscope, you can see them swimming. It's like a pond full of tadpoles. Yeah, exactly. And these guys are swimming pretty fast. As you see, the computer is tracked. So you see it, it, it records a one-second video of the, the sperm swimming, and then it shows me what direction it's swimming, and it puts a little trace on there um, of the, the swimming path. And from that, we can uh, the computer can calculate the sperm swimming speed. And what's interesting is you'll also see quite old bits of, of sperm. These are just broken off mid-pieces and tails and things that are obviously just sitting in this male's reproductive tract, but they're not useful. But he's got a mixture here of, of good quality sperm that's alive and swimming around. These guys are swimming pretty fast, actually. They are. They're speeding along. They're, they're booking it, aren't they? <laughs> and, um, yeah, they've got somewhere to go, obviously. Um, and then you've got this, this debris as well. Some of them are swimming quite smoothly and others of them are quite wriggly. Yeah, so that's another thing that we can measure is the what we call the linearity of the, the swimming path. We want to see are they are they swimming in a straight line or are they swimming in circles? Because obviously if they're if they're swimming round and round in circles, then that's not going to get them anywhere. Whereas if they're bird sperm tends to swim quite straight. Um and so if we're seeing sperm like this has got a very, very smooth, straight trajectory, that's a really good sperm that's kind of gonna make good headway in the female's reproductive tract. So the key thing in this is that in every sense, speed is the essence. Yeah. Your processing speed, and then for the bird, it's the speed of the sperm. Exactly, yes. The sperm are on a race to get to the egg, and I'm on a race to get them under the microscope. But it is pretty awesome to be able to take a sample like this and then just pop it under a slide and see see all these tiny, tiny cells, basically, just swimming around and, and doing their thing. I'm a bit of a bird sperm geek now, though, so... <laughs> So you've been working in a few different places with a few different birds over the last few weeks? Yeah, well, over the past year, in fact. Last year, we ran a similar experiment, but with South Island robins. We did that in five sites across the north of the South Island. The islands on Queen Charlotte Sound and in Abel Tasman and also in Kaikoura. I recently spent two weeks on Tiritiri Matangi, up near Auckland. And there I was working with hihi, or stitch birds, which is another really interesting bird that has very, very strong mate competition and therefore they produce an awful lot of sperm. It's been really interesting for me because the sperm of the different birds is so different. You can, you know, you can see the differences. Some of them are longer than others. Some of them are short and fat. Some of them swim in a certain way. It's known that there's, there's really high variation in, in sperm morphology across a really wide variety of, of animal taxa, but it's really cool to actually see that. Yeah. <laughs> so these are blackbird sperm. You can see they look a little bit different to the dunnocks. So these guys are a little bit shorter than the dunnock sperm. They look a bit fatter and squatter. They're less linear than the dunnock sperm. And they're swimming, you can see they're kind of doing loop-de-loops, which is interesting. 
I've not seen that so much with bird sperm before. It's something you might see in fish sperm. The red traces on the software mean that the sperm is moving very, very fast. Green is quite fast and then blue is quite slow. So you can see that the other guys we were looking at before, almost all the sperm had a red trace. They were all moving extremely fast. Whereas this guy, he's got a bit of a mix. So he's got some red, some green, and then even a few blues scattered around in the background. And that's what we're looking at. We're looking for these differences in in sperm quality between males and trying to figure out what's causing that. Is it is it to do with their age? Is it to do with inbreeding? That's that's the thing I'm most interested, genetic diversity and, and inbreeding. And for Carlos's work, he's actually interested in whether it's anything to do with their social status as well, because he has alpha males in these populations who are who are in this population who are mate guarding, and then beta males who are trying to sneak extra pair copulations with, with the females. And so that's two different reproductive strategies, and he wants to know whether there's any difference in sperm quality between those two types of males, which would be really interesting to see. So you're interested in looking at the effects of inbreeding, that's why you're looking at birds like robins on islands, yeah, peahee exactly. on islands. Exactly, birds where we know they've experienced a, a bottleneck of a, a certain number of individuals. So the robins, for example, uh, five birds were taken from a source population on Nukuwaiata, to make a new population on Motuara, and five birds were taken from Kaikoura to make a new population on All Ports Island. So those really tight bottlenecks of, of five birds have reduced genetic diversity in those um, translocated populations and also increased the chance of inbreeding. And we know that um, across a really wide variety of species, from mammals, insects, all the way through to plants, inbreeding seems to have this universal effect on male fertility. And it's it's not clear why male fertility in particular is, is so susceptible to inbreeding. This hasn't really been studied in birds that much either. And so by, by looking at this across a wide variety of, of bird species, what we're trying to find out is whether there's any kind of common mechanism, a common genetic mechanism that makes male fertility so susceptible to inbreeding depression. Using the genetic data that we're trying to get, what we actually want to do is have a look for, for genes that might be specifically being affected by inbreeding depression, so genes for spermatogenesis, for sperm manufacture within the male, or things like that. Um, and if we can find genes like that that are being affected by inbreeding depression, then we can look across and see, well, is, is it the same gene that seems to be affected in all species, or is it different pathways in different species are being affected in different ways? And that'll be really interesting to see. So you've done your sperm motility, your sperm swimming. Do you do anything else with the samples? Yes, yeah, so we're looking at two other measures of sperm quality. Um, we look at the morphology, so all the leftover sperm I store in formalin and that gets taken back to the lab and we can look at that under a microscope uh, later on. Uh, but while I'm here in the, in the field, I also make smear slides of the sperm and we're using that to look at something called DNA fragmentation. So obviously all sperm cells are carrying DNA in their nucleus and if they were to fertilize an egg that DNA would contribute to the to the developing embryo. And something that was found in a relatively recent study of gazelles was that when you've got higher amount a uh, higher level of inbreeding you see more DNA fragmentation in sperm cells and this DNA fragmentation is essentially it's damaged DNA. And um, the study on the gazelles found that when there's more DNA fragmentation you get sperm that swims slower they also have more abnormalities, and that if those sperm do manage to fertilize an egg, you see higher offspring mortality. Now, that's something that's known from human studies. We know that when there's higher DNA fragmentation in sperm, you get higher incidence of miscarriage and, and, and lower fertility in general. 
And so it's really interesting. Nobody's looked at this in birds. Nobody's looked at it in any really non-human animal apart from these gazelles. And so we want to see if we're, if we're seeing something similar here. Is there damage at a fundamental level? Is inbreeding depression affecting the DNA that's actually being carried by the sperm cells themselves? Because that could have implications across fertility, embryo development, and a, a wide range of traits that could you know, cause problems with reproduction. So I get why you're looking at inbreeding and you're looking at birds like robins and hee-hee, which have been through these little bottlenecks as they get transferred to islands. Why are you also looking at dunnocks and blackbirds here? Because they're introduced birds, they're really common. Yep, they are indeed. So they're not of uh, conservation importance at all, but obviously those birds, when they were introduced by the British Naturalisation Society, they all went through their own population bottleneck. So the, all the, the native English birds that were introduced to New Zealand were introduced in varying numbers, so about 800 blackbirds were brought into the country, but only about 200 dunnocks. And then other birds like Cyril Bunting, there are only seven Cyril Bunting releases that have gone to make the population of Cyril Bunting we have in New Zealand today. And so these make a really good contrast. What we want to see is we've, we've got these birds like the robins that have been through these really tight bottlenecks of five individuals on some of their populations, and then we've got birds like dunnocks and blackbirds that have gone through much larger bottlenecks of 200 800 individuals and that, that's a really nice contrast to see well as as these bottleneck sizes increase or decrease do we see corresponding decreases or increases in male fertility there's a study on hatching success across native and introduced species in in new zealand it was a big meta-analysis done by jim brisky and miles mcintosh at the university of canterbury and they looked across the bottleneck size that the bird had experienced both the native and in the introduced birds and then recorded instances of hatching failure in those birds. And what they found was that as the bottleneck size decreased, so it was a smaller number of birds had passed through the bottleneck, the hatching failure also increased. So it looks like these tight bottlenecks are causing greater losses of genetic diversity, greater incidences of inbreeding, and then greater hatching failure. But what's not clear is whether that hatching failure is to do with problems in embryonic development or whether it's problems with male fertility. And that's what we're hoping to get at with this study, to, to find out exactly what the causal factor is there. So, Carlos, you're at the front end of the bird handling today. You're actually processing all the birds as they come out of the mist nets. Yes, that's the first thing we do in the morning. We came here really early every day on like 5.30, and we set up the nets and we start catching the birds. Some days we have like many of them, some days we have less. Like today's quite busy. We already have like maybe six dunnocks, but that's pretty good. And it's only just after 7 o'clock in the morning. Yes, but we usually have only two or three per day. So how long have you been working here in the Botanic Gardens? Well, this is my third field season. So what exactly are you looking at? Well, I'm studying the evolution of mating systems or mating strategies. As you know, many species, we have what we call monogamy, which is one male and one female, and they both work together to raise, let's say, the offsprings. However, some species, there are different systems, like polyandry, in which different males, let's say more than one male, help the female to raise the offspring. There are in nature a few species that can have more than one system, and those systems work simultaneously. This is the species that I'm studying, the Danox, because they have two mating systems working together. They create such a nice environment to check how mating systems evolve. I look at Danox and they look like 
little brown finches and you'd think that they were pretty dull and monogamous but what you're saying is that some of them might be monogamous and then others have several males helping a female. Exactly. The myth of monogamy maybe 10 years ago changed. We strongly believe like a decade ago, maybe almost two decades ago, that most species, especially birds, they were monogamous. But there is what we call extra pair paternity. So females get copulation for different males. But in Danox, it's quite special because those extra copulations they get, at the end, those males also help her to raise her chicks. So what she's gaining with those extra copulation, actually, is creating the polyandry system. And that polyandry system is, to some extent, beneficial for her because you can imagine a female having two males whereas another one's only having one male. But the problem now is, let's say, one female with two males. If you look only at her, she will raise more offspring. She's getting more help. But that's not beneficial for the males. Because for a male, under a male perspective, he wants to have his own female. So the number of fledglings he can produce is higher. So it creates a conflict also between males. And that led us to the Helen study which is with the sperm competition. Because there are many males copulating with the same female that creates what we call a sperm competition because they need to produce better sperm to guarantee paternity. So Helen's study is sitting very nicely alongside your longer study. Yes. Perhaps the biggest advantage that we have like in this sort of collaboration is that we have something precious. We have like what we call fitness data for long term. We have been running this project for at least seven years. This project has involved three PhD students. And having such a long-term database, we know each individual very well. We have been following them for like seven field seasons. So we know who is who in this population. We know how fit they are. We know how old they are. We know how many females they have. So because we have all sort of natural history information about each individual, when we link this with the Helen study, we can, I would, I would not say for the first time, but we will have a really nice approach in the wild, how sperm competition really works. Most of those studies have been experimental approaches, but this is one of our challenges to try to test in the field, in the wild whole sperm competition works. But that's a big challenge. So this Dunnock population here in the Dunedin Botanic Gardens, how many birds are you talking about? It varies uh, every year, but on average we have 80 to 90, more or less 20 to 25 females, maybe 50 to 60 males. Sometimes it's two males per female, but sometimes there are less. And they're quite territorial and you know where all their territories are? Yeah, yeah, that's one advantage of working with them because they keep the territories along the year but they keep the territory and they defend the territory a lot during the breeding season, during the summer. That helps us a, a lot just to know where is each female. So we know this territory, we have this female, this is the male for this territory, those ones are her males. And that helps us a lot to... It, Know, to know each individual very well. And you have to find all the nests? Yes, yes, we spend a lot of time just looking for nests. It's quite challenging, but we, we manage to find them. It's, it's, sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's more difficult, 
It depends. We know each female very well. There was a PhD student here studying personality. So we know which females are bold, which females are shy, and of their behavior in the nesting is more or less the same. Sometimes they make the nest easier for us, sometimes they hide the nest very well, and that, we just need to spend more time looking for them. Is there a nest around here? Yes. So I thought you'd head to a tree, but you've headed to a rose bush. Yeah. This one was predated. Here there was a female incubating nicely her eggs and most likely a cat predate this nest. So you there's can just see. some remnants of eggshell left. Yes. yes. They're very uh, greeny blue eggshells, aren't they? Yes, yes they are. This is one of the things that we are studying here, like why this blue-green coloration in the eggs. So the garden, if you think in Dunedin, and you think in the botanical garden in Dunedin, it's such a peaceful place. Nothing happened, you know, like no thieves, nothing. But when you look at the predation, it's huge, it's massive. And cats are the biggest predator here. They are the main ones. So let's say this nest that I just, I'm showing you here. This is her third nesting attempt. So she has built this year three nests and all of them have been predated. And all of them have been predated by the same cat. So dealing with those cats here is very difficult because the cat's owners they think, no, it's not my cat, you know, it's not, it's not mine, mine, no, I feed him very well. He's always eating his food here. But in the garden, at least, I would say 20 to 25% of the nest, we lost them every year because this cat situation. And I, I, we, we think that that's a shame. There are different predators here, like rats. Rats, they mostly predate the eggs. So they like just to eat the eggs. But those ones, that the one that, I'm, that we have here, is clearly predated by a cat. And it, yeah, it's a shame because this female now, the summer is going through, you know, time she's is short now, she's running out of time and she needs to make it. So now she needs to decide very quickly, I need to build a new nest, I need to lay eggs again, and I need, need to give it a go once more for the fourth time in less than, you know, two months. That nest is quite substantial, it must take a bit of building. Yeah, this is actually an activity exclusive to females, so the males do not help building the nest in these species. And at the beginning the females spend two, three days building a nest, but when the time is running up, when they are without time, let's say, they start building really fast, so they can build a nest within a day. So I'm pretty sure these females we are just talking about, she's going to build a nest within a day. And uh, the nest is quite nice, you know, it's upside big, with big tricks and inside it's with moss, some moss, and inside they have feathers to make it soft. But I've seen here, it's very common, they use hair, like human hair, and that makes like a nice layer in the nest, in the inner, in the inner part of the nest, which is really soft. How many eggs do they lay? They usually lay, yeah, three to four eggs, sometimes two. A few females, five, but on average I would say three. The process is, is, is quite fast because they lie the eggs and then they keep incubating 10 days, 10 to 11 days. And then the chicks remain in the nest 10 to 11 days as well. And then they fledge. So in total, since she start lying the eggs till they fledge, it's maybe 20 to 25 days. So it's, they grow really, really fast.
That was Carlos Esteban Lara, a PhD student in the zoology department at the University of Otago. And you also heard from postdoctoral researcher Helen Taylor from the Department of Anatomy. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter at RNZ underscore science. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.